Good afternoon. I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions, and I welcome you to your Virginia Museum of History and Culture. The Virginia Museum of History and Culture acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan Nation that inhabited the land where this museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, present, and future. We also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Ann Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. Uh, before I introduce uh, Kim, uh, I'll mention a few updates on our program schedule, um, so you want to mark your calendars for some of these. Uh, tonight, uh, we have a virtual program at 6 p.m. called Commonwealth in Conversation, uh, and uh, this uh, alludes to uh, our signature exhibit that will be opening in mid-May called Our Commonwealth, uh, which we're doing in partnership with 10 museums across the state. Uh, we'll have a number of those partners uh, on the Zoom uh, presentation that will discuss their roles in developing this exhibit. Uh, which provides a multi-sensory exploration through the five regions of Virginia. On April 11th at 10 a.m., uh, our Curator Conversation Series will continue. That's a virtual program as well, where you'll have an opportunity to meet Joseph Rogers, who's our new Manager of Partnerships and Community Engagement. So you'll hear about uh, the projects that Joseph is working on to build relationships uh, with communities across the Commonwealth. And finally, on April 28th at noon, uh, Jane Turner Censor will be here to talk about her new book, The Princess of Albemarle, uh, which is about Virginia author Emily Reeves. Um, before I introduce Kim, uh, just a reminder that she will be signing books after the presentation right outside in the lobby. Growing up in rural Appalachia, Kim Borchard was well acquainted with stereotypes of Appalachian poverty and backwardness. For that reason, she was struck by accounts of an opulent, gold-rich province by the name of Appalachie in 16th century Spanish, Portuguese, and Inca accounts of early European forays into Florida. What at first seemed a linguistic coincidence proved to be a pervasive and untimely or ultimately deadly myth, generation after generation of explorers and would-be conquistadors from Spain, Portugal, France, and finally England raided Appalachian territory and ravaged native societies of the Southeast in attempt to seize gold and silver mines associated first with the Appalachian people and later with the Appalachian Mountains. Today's talk will describe the devastating power of 16th century disinformation over two centuries while following the Appalachian migration out of Florida uh, into central Louisiana, where the Appalachian Indians continue to fight for their sovereignty to this day. Kim Borchardt earned her BA and MA from Ohio University and her PhD from the University of Chicago. She teaches courses in Spanish, Latin American colonial literature, and Spanish for Social Justice at Randolph-Macon College. Please welcome Kim Borchardt. Thank you so much for the introduction, and thank you all for coming to spend uh, part of your day with me. Before I start, uh, do we have any mountain people here? Just out of curiosity, anyone from the hills? No? All right. Um, so I will go ahead and jump in, and I'm going to start with one of the epigraphs from my book. So if anyone here knows Spanish, this will look a little bit odd. It's because it's technically Ladino, a medieval Jewish variant of Spanish. Um, but it's something that I, I really carried in my heart uh, while I was working on this research. A people that lose their history also lose their sense of reality. And what I'm going to be talking about today will be a very long and complex and, in many cases, wrenching 
piece of history that I was completely ignorant about, even though it had to do with the first European contact and exploration with the region where I grew up. And I think that it not only causes us to lose our sense of reality, but that it greatly impoverishes us to, to be ignorant of these things. So to jump in, just a little bit of background to help explain how I got to this, this piece of history that initially may seem so obscure. My reality, um, I was born and raised in the Appalachian foothills of southeastern Ohio. A lot of people don't associate uh, Ohio with Appalachia, but that southern part is, <laughs> we're really, a friend of mine calls it the West Virginia part of Ohio. Um, we're very Appalachian. I pursued a PhD in Spanish at the University of Chicago. And my focus, as, as you were already told a moment ago, was the Latin American colonial period. While I was doing my graduate coursework and some of my doctoral research, I was reading the account of a relatively well-known 1528 shipwreck in Florida that included these reports of this mythical land of hyperbolic wealth called Appalachian, which was supposedly full of gold and and all, all sorts of valuable things. I noticed right off the bat that this looked and sounded a lot like Appalachia, but the, a relationship between Western Florida and the Appalachian Mountains seemed entirely improbable, and I didn't really know what to do with it, so I just kind of filed it away in my mind at the time. But I kept reading, and Appalachia kept appearing in other sources, and it soon moved northward and eastward away from the Florida coast. There was a lot of confusion about what this word and place actually were. Sometimes it seemed to be people, sometimes it seemed to be a place, and only about 40 years after that initial account did it become associated with the mountains and remain associated with the mountains. All of this led to an epiphany, an epiphany which, again, I didn't really know what to do with at the time, but it was that colonial Latin America, this seemingly very geographically and culturally distant place from where I had grown up, actually included the inland mountains of the southeastern U.S. or the place that I knew of as home, and this really changed my perspective um, towards both my own, my own research and my place in the world. And I noticed, of course, also that there was a general lack of attention to this in the scholarship with a few notable exceptions. So there are people uh, that study things touching on much of what I'll be talking about today, but usually within sort of discipline-specific camps that are not looking at Appalachian history. They're looking at archaeology, ethno-history, Florida history. All of this raised for me a, an almost existential question as a scholar of colonial Latin America who had been born and raised in Appalachia. And it was, why are we taught that Appalachia is about this? And I almost, I, I had a, I spent several days deciding whether or not to include this image um, because I don't, I don't feel good about the image, but this, was one of the first images that came up when I did a Google image search for Appalachian people. If you're out in the world and you want to know what people in Appalachia are like and you go to everyone's favorite search engine, this is what you find. I also wanted to know why I'd never learned about this. So the map on the, on, on the left here that looks to me a lot like the Indian subcontinent, this is actually Florida, or supposed to be Florida, and I'll be talking about this shortly as I will uh, the image next to it. I also wanted to know why I hadn't learned about this. Has anyone heard of Fort San Juan in North Carolina? Okay, well, then I'm glad I'm gonna be talking about it. This is a historical marker outside Morganton, North Carolina, uh, near a Spanish fort, the excavation of which you can see on the right. And if anyone's interested, they do uh, public field days where members of the general public can come participate on the archeological dig. It's really fascinating and it's an astonishingly um, democratic, uh, uh, publicly available archeological project. So to put Appalachian exploration in the European colonial context and kind of put ourselves in the minds of the people who 
we're doing the things that I'm going to be talking about. Um, we have to keep a few things in mind. The first thing is that the Spanish had, quote unquote, discovered um, Mexica, better known as Aztec Mexico, and Inca and the Inca Empire in Peru with their uh, wealth very, very recently, in the early 1500s. And these discoveries had sparked the search for El Dorado on, on the banks of the Amazon River, right? The, the search for this mythical golden kingdom. This is something very well known and well studied. What is much less discussed is at the exact same time that Spanish explorers were searching for El Dorado uh, along the banks of the Amazon River, they were also looking for it to the north um, in the northern latitudes. Anyone who has studied early modern theories of climate and geography will know that it was, it was considered to be scientific thought at the time that if certain resources were found at a given latitude north or south of the equator, similar resources would be found at the corresponding latitude on the other side of the equator. So this search at the time was considered to be logical. And very important to keep in mind is that the first search for gold in Apalache came just seven years after the fall of Mexico Tenochtitlan. Um, so the stories of the wealth uh, conquered by Hernán Cortés of the massive, sophisticated civilization found in central Mexico. These were very fresh in the minds and hearts of people back in Europe who were hoping to cross the ocean and find something similar for themselves. Oh, it looks like some of the images didn't transfer here. <laughs> That's unfortunate. But um, over where you see ES, ESPT, et cetera, those were an originally national flags. So I, I tried to illustrate the countries of origin um, of these different accounts with national flags. But that's been lost. It's OK, however. Um, so I'm not going to talk about all of the sources that I'm going to show you here. I'm just pulling up this slide to give you an idea of the number and wealth of, of sources that there are talking about Appalachian gold and silver and wealth, um, beginning in Spanish, then moving into Portuguese, then into French for a brief but very important period, then back into Spanish until the end of the 16th century. And only around the end of the 16th century do we see our first uh, English author talking about the possibility of mining gold in the Appalachian Mountains. Um, things then slip back into Spanish for a little while, and they only definitively, uh, these, these accounts of gold and silver in the mountains only definitively uh, become cemented into the English language in the second quarter of the 17th century. Um, and I'll be talking about the last person on this slide and the last person on this slide. But I just wanted to give this image so you'd have a little bit of an idea of the wealth of sources talking about, um, about this topic. I'm going to start with the Narvaez expedition. Um, this is an expedition that left Cuba in 1527 to explore La Florida, um, which was the Florida panhandle, and then everything beyond it, because Europeans still had no idea what was to be found uh, in North America. Um, Panfilo de Narvaez, I'm assuming we have history buffs in the audience, not necessarily Latin American history buffs. Panfilo de Narvaez had previously made a cameo uh, in Latin American history by going to attempt to arrest Hernán Cortés while he was carrying out his illegal and unauthorized um, conquest of Mexico. Narvaez failed and was actually blinded in one eye in his effort, but he survived um, to go on and die in a different way, um, trying to explore Florida. Um, right off the bat, when this expedition left uh, Cuba, it seemed cursed. <laughs> there were multiple shipwrecks. Hundreds of people died before they even reached land. Four survivors washed up on the northwestern coast of Florida and ended up walking from Florida across the southern US and back into Mexico over the course of nine years. The author of the account uh, that, that has preserved this experience for the rest of us is a man by the name of Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, and this text is commonly known as Naufragios. You'll notice that um, they 
the expedition officially ended in 1536, but his account was not published until 1542, and that lag is going to be significant for the next chapter um, of our journey. But first, I'm going to talk for a moment about Cabeza de Vaca. Um, this comes very early in his account when they when they washed up on the shores of Florida, naked, starving, freezing, uh, suffering from various illnesses. So what they did as soon as they were rescued by the indigenous people was, of course, to ask where the gold was. <laughs> um, and Cabeza de Vaca says this. We found samples of gold. By means of signs, we asked the Indians where those things had come from. They indicated to us by gestures that very far away from there, there was a province called Appalachian in which there was much gold. And they made signs to indicate that there were very great quantities of everything we held in a sedim. How all of this could have been communicated via signs is, is open to discussion. But this was the claim, and this was enough. Um, Cabeza de Vaca returned, never brought home any gold, but he returned to Spain, and he, as he was working on the account of his, of his experiences, Hernando de Soto, who had already participated in the conquest of the Inca Empire in Peru and become a very wealthy man in so doing, um, he made it back to the Spanish court while um, Cabeza de Vaca well, initially, while well, he was still wandering across the American South and Southwest, and then when Cabeza de Vaca was back in Spain, he heard these rumors um, of wealth in La Florida, thanks to things that were buzzing around um, after Cabeza de Vaca's return, and he managed to secure the governorship of Florida for himself before Cabeza de Vaca could. So we had a lot of uh, kind of competition and intrigue, though things did not turn out well for de Soto either. So the DeSoto expedition officially lasted from 1539 to 1544, though DeSoto himself would die before, before the rest of his men made their way back home. There are two eyewitness accounts of this expedition. The first is from the, the year that the expedition officially ended, 1544, Luis Hernandez de Biedma. He was the official uh, government chronicler of the expedition. Thirteen years later, we have a man known only as the Fidalgo de Elvas, or the Gentleman of Elvis. It's, uh, he wrote another account in Portuguese. We know virtually nothing about this person or what his identity was, but he wrote a very long and detailed account of the expedition. Both of these accounts document two of the same things. The first is promises of precious metals, which are continuously deferred further and further inland away from the Florida Peninsula and further into the inland of, of what is now the United States. And they also both document continuous assaults upon and abductions of native, native people in the American Southeast. DeSoto's legacy would thus also be twofold. The first is that he precipitated the collapse of multiple chiefdoms throughout the American Southeast through disease and warfare. And the second is that dis the accounts of the DeSoto expedition are the first that make outright, they, they document rather bluntly, the systematic capture of indigenous slaves, particularly female slaves, particularly as another historian of the 16th century said, female slaves who were neither particularly old nor particularly ugly. So you can imagine uh, the fate that awaited these poor women. We're gonna, we're gonna jump for a moment to France. So um, the first, so I think everybody heard in grade school about, I, I believe in English it's, it was pronounced uh, Ponce de Leon is Ponce de Leon in, in Spanish. That was 1513. We then had subsequent expeditions um, going up to the DeSoto expedition. They were all catastrophic. They not only failed to find wealth or make peace or establish permanent colonies, but they ended really badly. Lots of people died. So Spain took a break for a minute to kind of recoup from these losses, and France decided that it could, it could take a stab at it. 
The French settlements in Florida were very short-lived, um, but they would have very important consequences for our story. The first of these was in 1562. Jean Ribot founded Charles Fort on what is now Paris, now, now called Paris Island, off the coast of South Carolina, where there's now a military base. And in 1564, René de Laudonniere founded Fort Caroline near today's Jacksonville, Florida, or possibly Darien, Georgia, but the, the jury's still out on this. Um, so it's commonly accepted that it was near Jacksonville. The French experience made the Spanish experience look good. So the Spanish experience was notoriously catastrophic, um, but the French one was even worse. They starved, they kidnapped each other, they mutinied against their leaders, and they ended up resorting to survivor cannibalism and eating one another when the indigenous people of Florida got tired of providing them with food. And that was before it ended, and the end was particularly bloody and gruesome. But before that happened, some very important uh, things would happen. The French involvement in Florida would have some serious consequences. The survivors did two important things, the first of which was that they perpetuated the idea that Apalache was rich in gold. Apalache, of course, took on a different spelling in these texts, which were written in French and Latin, but it was the same, the same original place name. They also were the ones who, for the very first time, associated Apalache or Apalazzi with the mountains to the north of present-day Florida, and, and there the name stayed, right? So this, is, this was a momentous uh, cartographic mistake. The texts making these claims were translated into English in 1586 and 1591, respectively, dedicated to Sir Walter Raleigh and immediately served as fuel for English ambitions in the New World, which is exactly what they were intended to do. Um, I'm going to talk very briefly about Laudonniere and in slightly more detail about Lemoyne. Much of Laudonniere's uh, account of his time in Florida is a self-exculpation. So there were accusations of malfeasance, of poor leadership. There was a rebellion against him. So a lot of what he wrote was just trying to set the record straight and clear his name. But he was also very interested in Appalachian gold. And he wrote, they say that in the mountains of Appalachi there are mines of copper, which I think to be gold. If it seems a little odd that he would say that he was told that they were copper mines, but he's decided that they were gold mines, this is something that we're going to see repeated for the next 200 years. Um, so there was a lot of wishful thinking involved in this. Jacques Le Moyne de Morgue was not one of the leaders of these expeditions or settlements, um, but he accompanied Laudonniere in the foundation of Fort Caroline. And he, wrote, he did write his own of a, account of the colony, but he had been hired as a cartographer, and it is his cartography that will have the most lasting effect on the story of Appalachia and of the eastern and southeastern United States. So you've already seen this. This is now the third time I've showed you, shown you the map. I really love this map. It's beautiful. It's kind of hilariously inaccurate. I think it looks more like the Indian subcontinent than it does Florida. Um, but in addition to being hilariously inaccurate and beautiful, despite that, um, it did something very important. So we're gonna look at this central part of the map and we're gonna zoom in. So you'll see a mountain with a waterfall and a lake. These are very common tropes uh, associated with El Dorado, the search for El Dorado in South America. And the Latin legend reads, Appalachian mountains in which gold, silver, and copper are found, as well as in the lake, the indigenous discover silver flakes. Lemoyne also wrote, and he wrote in some detail, and he said, a great way from the place where our fort was built are great mountains called Apalazzi, in which, as the map shows, arise three great rivers, in the sands of which are found much gold, silver, and brass. The Spaniards have been able to use for their advantage the wealth thus obtained. I'm sure the Spaniards would have been fascinated to learn that they had, <laughs> they had thus enriched themselves with the gold and silver of the Appalachian Mountains, 
because of course, as far as we know, the Spanish just kept dying every time they tried to find this gold and silver. Um, but the belief that another competing empire had already found these resources and was exploiting them for their own gain continued to, um, to fuel the fire. Lemoyne also included this illustration titled How the Natives Collect Gold from the Streams, and he describes in great detail how this was allegedly done. Contemporary archaeologists, anthropologists, and ethno-historians have said rather definitively that this is untrue, that, that gold was never gathered in this way uh, north of Mexico during this period. But, but he put it in print. There's a picture. It must be true, right? Um, Spain, of course, even though it had given up on conquering Florida for a while, uh, once, once word got back that there was not only a French colony in Florida, but a French Protestant colony, uh, this was unacceptable. Spain was ruled at the time by Philip II, who was famously reactionary, a famously devout uh, Catholic, and he was not happy to hear about the fact that there was a French settlement in this territory that he considered to be his own. There was a problem, though. The French queen mother was actually his mother-in-law, right? So he not only has a territorial issue, but he has a family issue. He has a mother-in-law issue. So how, how do we deal with this? How do we definitively purge these French Protestant interlopers from our territory without, without having problems with the mother-in-law, which, which can be catastrophic? Um, his solution was pragmatic. He sent Admiral Pedro Menendez de Aviles to burn and hang the French Lutherans in Florida. And he did write his mother-in-law to tell her that he had done this, but he forgot to do so for a few months. So he waited um, three months until Menendez had already safely landed in Florida before he wrote to his mother-in-law, Catherine de Medici, to tell her that he'd sent someone to, um, to you know, clean up the riffraff in Florida, which he, of course, assumed were not there with her blessing. From Florida, Menendez wrote home to Philip II. In a letter of October 15th, 1565, he described his confrontation with the French, which was wholesale slaughter. Um, it, except for the women and children, they were spared. It's a very gruesome scene in which one of uh, a, fr a French messenger comes up to him. He says, if we lay down our arms, will you spare us? Menendez says, lay down your arms and I will do as God, as God commands. And then God apparently commanded him to tie their hands behind their backs and slit their throats. Um, I'm used to reading these accounts and I'm used to the violence, um, but it's, it's a very gruesome scene. But he describes this rather coldly to his sovereign, who I assume approved of this way of dealing with the issue. Menendez also confirmed, in quotation marks, um, that the Appalachian Mountains were both a source of precious metals and that they were a primary trade and military route through the New World. Um, even if nobody here is from the mountains, if you've ever driven across them, uh, the thought that they, they're a direct route to Mexico is a little surprising. Um, but he, Menendez said in his letter that the men who had seized Fort Caroline had received news that 100 leagues to the north-northwest of Santa Elena, which is Paris Island, South Carolina, lies the mountain range that comes from Zacatecas, Mexico, and which contains much silver. And he thought that it was just a hop, skip, and a jump away. That wasn't all, however. Menendez also claimed to have learned from a French captive that the French and English were conspiring, that they were plotting together, first of all, to build a fort in Key West for pirating Spanish tre treasure fleets. So Pirates of the Caribbean was a real thing. Uh, a lot of Spanish treasure fleets were attacked as they were sailing across the Caribbean. Um, they were then going to invade Cuba, Hispaniola, Puerto Rico, and eventually the mainland in order, can anybody guess? In order to free all the African slaves. This really surprised me the first time I read it. 
As you might imagine, it was not because of an interest in human rights or emancipation. The implications of this was that the implications of this were that France and England were poised to sow, sow chaos throughout all of Spain's colonies in the New World by inciting a continental slave revolt. Um, this French and English alliance would then seize the mines of the Appalachian Mountains and use the mountains as kind of a highway um, to conquer everything southward, uh, beginning in the, you know, from the mountains of the Carolinas southward to Zacatecas in Mexico. Being a man of action, Menendez, of course, proposed a solution. The first was to build a fort in the Florida Keys before the French or English could do so to prevent the piracy uh, that was going on there, to prevent the pirating of treasure ships going to and from Cuba. Next, he said that Spain should settle um, Santa Elena, or Paris Island and the Chesapeake Bay here in Virginia to control regions to the north and west. Um, and I, I want to be clear before I move on that Menendez still associated Apalache correctly with the land and territory of the people that we know as the Apalache today in Florida. So he believed that the mountains were very important, that they were a source of, of wealth, um, but he didn't call them Apalache. The, the French maps and accounts had not been published yet. He wrote about the Appalachian people in this bay of Juan Ponce, Charlotte, which is about Charlotte Harbor, Florida, lies the province of Appalachia, untamable people. With a few hundred Spanish soldiers, the province will easily be crushed from here to New Galicia in Mexico, which may lie some 300 leagues or 1,038 miles away. He underestimated by about half, but he did not have the benefit of Google Earth, which I have to say, I used Google Earth a lot in this research. It was immensely useful. Thank you, Google. Um, so just a couple years after he had gone to Florida, um, Menendez tried to make good on his advice to Philip II. He sent a man by the name of Juan Pardo inland from Paris Island, uh, South Carolina, to look for gold, establish friendly relations with the native people, and build six forts in the North American interior. The location of five of these forts is still unknown, but one, Fort San Juan, was built near today's Morganton, North Carolina. I showed you a picture of the excavation earlier. And when we look, again, thank you, Google Earth, when we look at the location of Paris Island, uh, South Carolina, and the location of Fort San Juan in the Appalachian foothills of North Carolina, we'll find that they are almost precisely 100 leagues or 304 miles apart. So this fort was built um, exactly where Menendez's French captives had told him he would find the silver that had supposedly been brought to them by the natives. So uh, curious, they, they were very serious about, about these coordinates and, and they followed through. I really hope someone finds the other forts one day. Um, one of the accounts uh, of, the, of this expedition was made by Juan Pardo himself. And he wrote, I arrived in Tanaski, which is Tennessee, and I believe that there are medals of gold and silver. Again, I believe, not I found and I have, and, and here's a piece, right? Um, but again, all it took was someone saying they believed it was there. A few months after he had wiped out the French settlement at Fort Caroline, uh, Pedro Menendez returned to Florida for more personal reasons, and that was that he went to search for his son, Juan, who had vanished in a shipwreck. He didn't find him. But he found another shipwreck survivor, a man by the name of Hernando de Escalante Fontaneda, uh, who was a Colombian born Spanish Creole who had shipwrecked off the Florida coast at age 13 and spent the following 17 years uh, among various native peoples of Florida. 
Escalante Fontaneda understood, because he'd actually lived there, that the Apalachee people had no gold or silver of their own. Um, instead, he reiterated a now familiar trope that gold would be found inland in lakes and rivers. He wrote, there is no gold nor silver, save very far from there, where they say that there are mines of gold and copper at the foot of a river and lakes. And if they found any gold, it must have come from very far away from these lands. That's not really what concerns me about uh, his account, however. Of much greater concern are his recommendations regarding how to solve Spain's problems with the Florida natives who are at this point notorious for not being conquered. Um, and he wrote of them, they are great archers and traitors and they will never be at peace with us and even less Christians. The Spanish should capture them, inviting them in peace and put husbands and wives below decks and distribute them for money on the islands and even the mainland. Thus, they would be diminished through cunning. Very unfortunately, this was an omen of things to come and this was what would be the fate of millions of people in the American Southeast. It, it is now increasingly understood that mass enslavement of South Eater Eastern natives for sale in the Spanish Caribbean and English colonies was really what the, the ultimate downfall of the Southeastern chiefdoms more than warfare or disease alone. Um, and I wanna be clear, this is, I am not the one who, who came up with this idea. Um, I recommend this book to anyone who's interested in the to this topic. Uh, edited by Robbie Etheridge of the University of Mississippi and Sherry Shakal of, I believe, Christopher Newport University, uh, mapping the Mississippian Shatter Zone, which documents uh, through the collaboration of historians, archaeologists, and anthropologists how the southeastern chiefdoms were decimated through the slave trade, which, unlike the African slave trade, was not documented because it was illegal, and it was, for the most part, done entirely off the books. I'm going to jump ahead a couple more decades, and I'm going to talk about Diego de Molina, a Spanish spy who was held captive at Jamestown for several years. Um, Molina is going to serve as kind of our hinge between the Spanish and English empires in North America. Has anyone here heard of Molina? Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so apparently, I found this out while doing the research, they have done historical reenactments at Jamestown where an actor dresses as a Spanish soldier and you can interrogate him. I found this out after one of the last times it happened and then of course we had a pandemic. I'm hoping they bring this back. I would love to, I would love to go. So Molina was a ship captain who was sent to spy on the English settlement at Jamestown. Um, not wipe it out like Menendez, but to spy, to find out what was going on. He was captured off the Virginia coast almost immediately in 1611, and he was imprisoned for five years at the colony. In a letter to the Spanish ambassador in London, which was smuggled out of Jamestown in a friend's shoe, he warned that the English colony was, in his words, a hydra in its infancy, posing an existential threat to Spanish interests. The hydra, of course, is that mythological monster that when you cut one head off, two grow back in its place, right? So he was saying, this is really a threat. We're gonna lose, we're gonna lose this continent. He also, however, promised that there were precious metals to be found in the mountains to the west of Jamestown. And he wrote, the Indians say that at the sources of the rivers, after they've come down from the mountains, there are great quantities of grains of silver and gold. Molina, however, was not working for Philip II. He was working for Philip III, and this difference would be momentous. It was a very important, there was a very important change in the sovereign and the government. At this point, Spain's economy had been destroyed by the attempt to colonize and maintain control of lands all over the globe. Uh, Spain, Spain's empire was famously known as the empire where the sun never sets because of how, how wide, how 
excuse me, how widespread uh, the colonies were across the, the planet. For this reason, Molina's warnings went unheeded, and this is a really dramatic difference from just a few decades earlier when the, the knowledge of uh, French colonists in Florida led to you know, the arrival of a fleet who slaughtered everyone. In this case, nothing happened. So Philip III got this information, and he just sat on it. And that's why, of course, we're here speaking English today. Um, and we're going to, as I said, Molina is going to be our hinge between these two empires, and our next source will be English. I'm, I'm not going to talk about the Jamestown period. <laughs> um, I'm not going to talk about the Jamestown period, but I'm going to talk about the first attempt to cross the Appalachian Mountains from the Virginia colony. John Lederer was a German physician. We don't really know much about him other than he seems to have been well-respected as a physician. What led him to decide to cross the Appalachian Mountains? We don't know. Uh, it's rather mysterious. But he was commissioned by Virginia Governor William Berkeley to explore west of the fall line of our rivers. And during a very short period between 1669 and 1670, he carried out three expeditions, originally leaving from the area of Richmond, actually, um, to go westward into the Appalachian Mountains and attempt to cross them. Something very, very suspicious about Letterer's account is that he repeats the names of places and people mentioned by Lemoyne and Laudonniere, those French colonists in eastern Florida. Um, but of course, he was hundreds of miles further inland and further north, and more than a century had transpired. But he names a lot of the same people. Uh, he also claimed to have received reports of native warrior women, men fighting with silver hatchets, and silver mines in the mountains run by a mysterious race of bearded men. He claimed to have uh, gotten his hands on incontrovertible proof of Spanish-run mines, but he couldn't say quite where those mines were because, in his words, I thought it not safe to venture myself amongst the Spaniards, lest taking me for a spy, they would either make me away or condemn me to a perpetual slavery in their minds, which is, of course, a very convenient excuse not to bring any of these precious metals that he claimed to be certain of having found. Our last colonial source is going to be a man by the name of James Moore. Um, James Moore was an Irish colonist and trader in the, in the Carolina province. In 1699, he wrote a letter to Edward Randolph, who was the Surveyor General of Customs in North America, about an exploration he had supposedly carried out of the Appalachian Mountains nine years earlier. And I'm going to be citing this at length um, because it is unfortunately very important. In the year 1690, over the Appalachian Mountains, I took up seven sorts of ores or mineral stones. I was informed that the Spaniards had been at work upon mines within 20 miles of me. I inquired of the natives of the truth of that matter and the reason why they desisted. They told me it was true and described to me their great bellows and furnaces and that they had killed the Spaniards, lest when they grew numerous, they should make slaves of them to work in these mines as they had millions of other Indians. Reflecting, sir, on the weakness of this our colony and considering that the report of a silver mine among us would incite and encourage the French in America, if not in Europe, to invade us, I thought it convenient not to make any discovery of them. Now the peace between England and France seems to be well confirmed and lasting. I think this poor little colony of ours may not only be out of danger of an invasion, but be peopled and enriched by the working of these mines. A little backstory on Moore is necessary. 
to really underscore the cynicism of some of these claims. In 1683, he'd been denounced by the Lord's proprietors or the governing body of the Carolina province on the grounds that he had, quote, contemptuously disobeyed our orders about the sending away of Indians and contrived most unjust wars upon the Indians in order to the getting of slaves. He'd in fact been banned from all trade with the native peoples of the interior but that did not keep him from becoming governor of Carolina in 1700 when the standing governor suddenly died. Moore lost his governorship very quickly. Uh, two years later, he attempted to take uh, St. Augustine, which was still Spanish, um, and he failed and he lost the governorship. But two years after that, he carried out two privately funded slave hunting attacks uh, in 1704 with the approval of the Carolina legislature and despite the fact that he'd previously been banned from interacting with, with the native people of the interior. With these attacks, he ended up wiping out the remaining Spanish missions in Florida and with them the remaining Appalachian settlements. And so we see uh, the return of the Appalachian myth uh, is, is a cataclysmic one. And I also want to point out that many, many people um, were attacked and their settlements and ways of life destroyed, not just the Appalachian. It just happens to be that the Appalachian, or rather myths about the Appalachian, were the focus of my research and my book, so, so I'm not talking about other people. So I'm going to do a little bit of a recap of what I've talked about, and then I'm going to tell you uh, what the Appalachian are doing today, and we can open this up for questions. So between 1528 and 1704, we go from these rumors of gold on the western Florida coast to the ultimate decimation of the Appalachian people and their settlements, their remaining settlements in Florida through slave raiding. And we've seen that the Spanish belief in the existence of native mines in Appalachia, uh, or sorry, in Appalachia, north of contemporary Tampa in Appalachia territory, that belief in, in the existence of native mines, not mines, then became a French and English belief in the existence of Spanish mines. Appalachia became Apales and Apalazzi and moved into the mountains beginning in the 1560s. And this is what sparked the European race to explore westward from the coast, coastal Carolina province and Virginia to settle the mountains uh, from 1565 onward. And this ultimately led to the annihilation of the Appalachian settlements in Florida via slave raiding and outright warfare led by James Moore. The implications of this are pretty momentous. Um, worth of uh, Virginia Museum of History and Culture, right? So the implications of this for the history of the state and the region, and indeed this whole part of the continent, were that Appalachia or Appalachia ended up being the, the economic and military focus of European ambitions in southeastern North America beginning in the 1520s. Of course, Mexico is also in North America, so I'm talking about North America, north of Mexico, we don't quite have a, it's, it's difficult to, to say that efficiently. And this European belief in the existence of Appalachian or Appalachian gold and silver went hand in hand with the persecution of the Appalachian people, even though nobody ever found or established any mines. Uh, the mere belief in their existence was enough. Fortunately, the Appalachian story did not end in 1704 um, when, their when their last settlements in Florida were destroyed. About 800 Appalachian people fled uh, Florida and they went to Mobile, which was French at the time. Um, and I'll also mention as I'm transitioning into this final part of my talk, um, some of this information has been published, but a lot of it has been shared with me by the Appalachian people themselves. So a lot of this is coming from tribal records. They helped in the, consist in the construction of the fort in Mobile. They became fluent in French and they adopted the French style of dress. They acculturated, but they did not assimilate. They maintained a strong identity and they maintained their culture. They fought alongside the French to ward off English expansion into Louisiana. 
But then in 1762, France ceded the Louisiana territory west of the Mississippi to Spain. The remaining Appalachie, who were and continue to be known today as the Talamali Band, were then transported to the Red River Rapids, today's Rapids Parish in Louisiana. Um, I'm also going to apologize to anyone out there who is from Louisiana and knows how to pronounce Louisiana place names correctly. I was coached a few months ago, but I've forgotten the correct pronunciation, and I'm probably about to murder a couple of words. Um, they were given, in Louisiana, the Talamali Band was given a 22,000-acre land grant by Spain. Uh, and in 1779, Spain declared war on England in support of the American Revolution, um, at which point the Talamali Band of Apalachee Indians provided warriors uh, to the Spanish governor, Bernardo de Galvez, uh, after whom Galveston, Texas, is named. And they participated in the capture of Fort Butte, Baton Rouge, Mobile, and Pensacola. In 1800, however, Louisiana became French once again, just long enough to be sold to the US by Napoleon. And things would, would take, a, take a bad turn again under US rule. Um, once the Louisiana Territory had been bought by the U.S., assaults on the Appalachian people and their land resumed. In 1814, the Appalachian were approached by the first uh, U.S. Indian agent, John Sibley, and he reported upon them favorably to the U.S. government. He also repudiated the persecution of, um, of the tribe by U.S. speculators and merchants, and after making a rather... Uh, scathing denunciation of the abuses to which they were being subjected, he was promptly removed from his post. In 1826, the Appalachian fled, uh, and here's where I'm probably going to grossly mispronounce a name, uh, but they fled into the Kasachi Hills of Louisiana to escape the attacks of US speculators. And in 1834, they petitioned Congress. <clears throat> um, I'm not going to read you the whole petition, but the tribe shared it with me, and I'm going to read just a very short excerpt from it, which was, our village was burnt, our fences laid waste, and our women and children driven from our lands. Like so many things, the petition died in committee in Congress. They never got a reply of any kind. Um, and there was actually a brief respite, ironically, in attacks during the Civil War, but after the Civil War, the Ku Klux Klan began raiding Appalachian villages and hunting people down, literally hunting people down on their own land. In 1915, the Klan murdered Amos Bennett, who was the great-great-grandfather of the current tribal chief, Arthur Bennett. These attacks continued until at least 1951. And it was not until the 1990s when the tribe finally felt relatively safe enough to come out of hiding, reassert their native identity, and petition Congress to be reinstated as a federally recognized tribe. The Appalachian today can be found online, and they would love it if you looked for them. Um, they have their own website, talamaliband.com, and they also have a Facebook page. However, beware. These are the only legitimate pages uh, uh, or websites of the Appalachian na Nation. The current tribal chief is named Arthur Bennett. He is actually in Florida today, I believe, uh, doing a doing a presentation. He's doing a presentation tomorrow um, about the tribe. Um, but any claims you may find by others online to being the chief of the Appalachian Nation, I strongly encourage you not to believe. The tribe is actively seeking the, the assistance of an expert in tribal law. They had an attorney that was helping them with various things who died suddenly. They're also engaged in a legal struggle for the repatriation of ancestral remains. And they're hoping to eventually relocate to ancestral lands in Florida. Additional archival materials relevant to the tribe and their language, which has for the most part been lost, are likely to be found in Cuba. So if you happen to be, or if you happen to know an expert in any of these areas, they would absolutely love to hear from you and they could really use your help.
Thank you so much. Two questions, please. Are they a federally recognized tribe? They are not, and that is the problem. They were, and then in the course of the 19th century, that recognition was stripped from them, and that is the huge obstacle that they are facing, because in order to be recognized as a tribe, um, you have to demonstrate continue, cultural continuity Right. And they were forced to go into hiding because they were literally being hunted and murdered um, on their own land. Uh, the ancestor of, um, of the people that I've been talking to, his house was set on fire and he was burned alive in the house. Right. Um, so they had to hide who they were for a really long time. And this is a, this is a huge problem. And, and over the years, I would guess there was a lot of intermarriage with French, Spanish, all the others, which doesn't, you know. Right. Secondly, uh, how far or how far north did any of the marauding, whether they're French, Spanish, or English, get into what we now know as Appalachia? So that's a good question. So my study of it stops in Virginia. So I originally had intended to end my book just with the John Letterer expedition, um, because having been raised with a very incomplete history that I was of Appalachia, I was interested in all of that prehistory before the English tried to cross and settle the mountains. And so I was going to do everything up until the first English attempt to cross the mountains and then stop there. But then I discovered James Moore and I discovered not only what he had done to the Appalachee, but the fact that he had also made claims of having found Spanish mines in the mountains, and there was simply no way that I couldn't include that. So that's really where my research ended. But then, of course, going into the 18th century, um, you know, there was more persistent attempts to, you know, just to expand the, the colonies and, and expand westward into, into the continent. It sounds like a lot of, I'm going to tell my boss what I think he wants to hear on this and to justify what their, their mission was and for future funding. And I just wonder if you've got a similar theme throughout or if that's, that's out there somewhere. 100%. And I mean, that is, that is the case of countless, um, I mean, my, my focus has primarily, his, generally in my in my job, my my focus has generally been Spanish accounts, but there was a lot of that in the English accounts too, and the French accounts. Um, both kind of they had to they had to be accountable, right? Some investment had been made to get them to where they were going, and when they didn't manage to conquer the Aztec or Inca Empire, they needed to make a really good case for why they should keep getting funding, right, um, of one sort or another. So it, that is, it's pervasive through all, you know, the colonial accounts I've read in every language. That's always there. Um, either, look what an amazing thing I did, or look how it wasn't my fault that I didn't succeed in doing what I promised I was going to do, but this is why you should help me keep trying anyway. Um, it's, it's really a defining characteristic of the genre. Is that all? I go ahead, yeah. How large is the tribe now? It is just a couple hundred people, two or, two or three hundred people. It's a very small group. I am now drawing, I have their, I have their address and my phone and I'm drawing a blank, but it's not, it's not close to Louisiana. It's kind of central, okay. central Louisiana. And I'm, I'm drawing a complete blank on the name of the town. But as, as soon as I get off the stage, I'll remember and I can tell you. Courses based on my research? Yeah, I mean, since Appalachia is such a big... I would, I would love there to be. <laughs> Anyone out there watching? Um, I have incorporated different parts of this into my own courses. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's all. I mean, I, I incorporate... A lot of this, for instance, one of the texts that I showed the title of but I didn't talk about uh, was a book called 
the Florida of the Inca. Um, the first history of Florida was actually written in Spanish by the son of a Spanish conquistador and uh, an Inca print, well, what we would call a princess, and you know, someone of the upper class, the ruling class. Um, he was born in Peru, ended up moving to Spain, and while he was living in Spain, he wrote a history of the De Soto expedition, which he then published in Portugal. And I always teach part of this in my colonial uh, Latin America seminar to help students see that colonial, you know, Peru is very far away for most of my students uh, at Randolph-Macon, but Florida, everybody knows about Florida, right? So, so I, I use that text in particular to show the, show the very close connection between the Southern US and colonial Latin America. But this book just came out in May. So, you know, if anyone wants to turn it into a course, I would, I, I would be beside myself, but I don't know that anyone is, has done that yet. <laughs> Thank you.